0: ...a date which will live in infamy. See, Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Garara River. One the 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic team... ...so great for the breeder in America. So calm and sharpness <laughs> at the Schitzel. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in I say one million Jewish children who were made to become Musa. Adonavecho Whoever heard such beautiful words Adonavecho Talmud It is never too little it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and our Welcome guide. everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Gaber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode about Scandinavian Jewry and the Jewish community of Sweden has been generously sponsored by L.S. Men's Clothing of Midtown Manhattan at 212-575-0933. Makers of the Finest Custom Clothing by Copley and Hickey Freeman. Order now, still in time for your Pesach delivery. So you don't want to miss out on getting those great stuff. And it's also in honor of Chana Scharfstein, daughter of one of the protagonists of today's uh, episode, in anticipation of her forthcoming book of Scandinavian Memories and More. And it's entitled Standing on the Dollar Line. So uh, so wanna, we just took a little break, so we're back and better than ever. So I hope you enjoyed the little break. You got to check out some other podcasts, and now you're even more confident that you want to be back here. No, I'm just kidding. There's a lot of great stuff out there, and enjoy it as well. And I'm going to speak a little bit about a Scandinavian Jewry today. The focus is going to be on Sweden, and perhaps we'll have future uh, episodes about the other countries, about Finland and Denmark. Norway, there's a little less of a story, but uh, perhaps so as well. Uh, And most of, you know, it's pretty recent, the history there. Most of Scandinavia Jews were not allowed to live until uh, relatively recently and compared to most other countries in Europe. Um, Scandinavia is the Northern Europe um, uh, areas. Besides for Denmark, they're not even on the... uh, continental area of Europe, you know, Finland, uh, Norway, uh, F- Finland, Sweden, Norway, going uh, east-west, and then Denmark. Um, whenever I think of, of Scandinavia, so the first thing that comes to mind is in Denmark, you had a Hamlet, uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet, and there's that creepy scene with the guy holding the skull, and that's just, whenever I hear Scandinavia, that's what uh, I have in mind, so it's kind of scary, and of course the Vikings came from Scandinavia as well. So if you think about it in a general way, it's, it seems like a, a bit of a scary place, and it's cold, it's all the way up north. And there's also all, all sorts of things that sound funny. In, in, for instance, the language. If someone is is starting out studying the Finnish language, so you could say he's beginning Finnish, which which sounds a bit odd. and And if a person is speaking Danish, it sounds more like a food you'd buy at a Haimische Bakery in Park, but in fact it's a language. So there are all kinds of things about Scandinavia in general, but we're going to focus on the Jewish history. And like I said, we're going to primarily focus on, Sque- on Sweden, excuse me, and we'll get back to the others in future episodes. If you want to sponsor one of those... And of course, corporate sponsorships, the best place to advertise is right here on Jewish History Soundbites, and I'm also available for other sponsorships. Lectures, virtual tours are also available, so be in touch with me about that. For instance, we just mentioned the other ones in passing. Uh, Finland was in the Russian Empire uh, for a period of time. The capital of Finland, Helsinki, was a Jewish community it was of Russian Jews. And mostly they were uh, Cantonists, uh, those who served in the army. They were allowed to live outside the Palo Settlement so some of them settled down in Helsinki. It was a relatively New Jewish community and it was part of Russia. Um, The rabbi there for a period of time was Rabbi Naftali Amsterdam, one of the prime, three prime disciples of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, the founder of the Muslim movement and the one who promulgated the ideas of the Muslim movement in the second generation of of, uh, following uh, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. So he was the rabbi in Helsinki for quite a bit of time until he returned to Kovna and eventually uh, settled down in Yerushalayim in his last years, Bernard There's also a, a interesting story, the Zionist conference in, in Helsingfors, in Helsinki for a period of time was called Helsingfors, another name for, for the city, I think is the name in Swedish. Um, so the third conference of Russian Zionists took place in 1906. Remember, Finland was in the Russian Empire. Uh, so it took place in December of 1906, so it's a regional congress. It's just Russian Zionists. This is not of the entire world Zionist movement. This is just of the Russian Jews, and it was chosen because since it was at the fringe of the empire and outside the pale, they thought that there would be more freedom of speech from, you know, far further away from the Tsar and his police. Remember that it's right after the 1905 uh, failed revolution, so there's it's a reactionary period. And the program that was adopted at this conference would actually set the tone for all of Zionist activity in Eastern Europe for the coming decades. So it's a whole story how they decided about how they're going to work in the present and education and working in the, the, the diaspora and how they relate to the diaspora and the uh, there was a famous distinction between the Galut and the Gola. The exile and the diaspora and whatever. A whole We're not going to get into now when we talk about the history of Zionism which hopefully we'll get to one day. We'll speak about the uh, uh, the Helsingfors platform that was adopted by the Congress and the, how they made the state as the end goal but not the immediate goal. They redefined things following Herzl's passing and the 1905 revolution. Either way, there's a street name for it called Helsingfors in, in in Tel Aviv and it was immortalized by the legendary comedian, comedi- Hungarian-Israeli comedian Ephraim Kishon in one of his routines about uh, hard-to-pronounce street names in Tel Aviv. Either way, that's, that's for another time. But there's also a unique story about Finnish Jury in the Winter War. The Winter War was fought between Finland and the Soviet Union in 1940. It was like a sideshow of World War II. So they fought the Soviet Union. That's where the term Molotov cocktails comes from, by the way, because when, when the foreign minister, uh, Molotov, was asked, why is he sending in uh, artillery and missiles into Finland? He said, no, we're sending food were actually uh, parachuting in food, so they used to call the the what they were what the what the the, some of the artillery or shells that were falling they used to call the Molotov cocktails. They're coming along with the food. So either way, so the Finns were not happy about the Winter War and what they lost to Soviet Russia. So in Operation Barbarossa, when Nazi Germany invaded Russia in June of 1941, the Soviet Union 1941. So the Finns allied with Hitler and Nazi Germany against the Soviet Union. So Finland had Jews in Finland. They were you know they were allied with Nazi Germany, so naturally they, they 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 their army fought alongside Nazi Germany in against the Soviet Union. Now the fin, the Finland did not have the, the same discriminatory policy against the Jews that the Nazi Germany had. So there were Finns, Finnish Jews in the Finnish army. So this is as far as I know the only instance where Jews and Nazis fought on in, in on the same side in combat in combat on the same side during World War II. During World War I it was very common for Jews to be on all sides in Germany in Russia. I spoke about it in the World War I uh, series that I had World War I and the Jews it uh, was a whole series. During World War II there's basically no Jews fighting for the Axis. There were Jews in the Hungarian army, but they were not in combat. It's a whole different story. Here you had Finnish Jews fighting uh, in in combat uh, um, on the same side as the Germans. An interesting story. That's Finland. Um, you also have Norway, which is a very small community it came very late in the game. Also, uh, it was the first first the first community started at the end of the nineteenth century, literally in the eighteen nineties. So there's actually there's actually an earlier time when there were Sphardic Jews who were allowed to settle in. In Norway, but Ashkenazim were banned, so there is an interesting uh, discrimination there. Uh, N- Norway also banned shchita, as did Sweden. Uh, it wasn't easy for Jews to settle there. The Jewish population peaked at about two thousand in the 1930s. We're talking about a really small community, mainly in Oslo. When the Nazis occupy the country, so most of many Norwegian Jews are sent to Auschwitz and killed. Um, and the rest escaped uh, to Sweden or other places. The Denmark, Danish community, was a a little bit uh, larger, a little bit older. Uh, There were some prominent rabbis there. It's interesting, actually, Tsar Alexander III of Russia, who was more reactionary than his, quote, liberal or more liberal. No Tsars were actually liberal, but relative to other Tsars, Tsar Alexander II was considered a little bit more uh, progressive. So his, when he was assassinated in 1881, so his son, Tsar Alexander III, became the, the emperor of uh, the Russian Empire. And he was reactionary. He was very uh, cruel and hard to deal with. And uh, this was the time of the pogroms. 1881 is when the pogroms and the emigration begins and the May laws. And it was a terrible time for the Jews of Russia. So he was actually married, this Tsar Alexander, to the daughter of the king of Denmark, so Yaakov Lifshitz, the secretary of Yeritza Glechon inspector in Kovna, so he's the famous, legendary secretary. I had an episode about him way back in the beginning of Jewish history, Soundbites. so he actually describes how they tried to, in his book, in the Zichron Yaakov, they tried to get in touch with the Danish Jewish community at the time to intercede with the Danish king, to try to influence the Tsar, who was his son-in-law. So when the czar came to visit his shver, his father-in-law, so the Danish king could influence him. So the Jewish community was used as a proxy. So we all know how we would react if our Shver would try to boss us around and tell us what to do. So Tsar Alexander was no different and uh, he was not interested in what the Danish king had to tell him. So it didn't really help, but it's still an interesting story. There's also the famous story of the escape of Danish Jewry during the Holocaust that definitely needs its own episode. So we'll have to get back to that at another time. Almost the entire Danish community, 8,000 Jews in Rosh Hashanah of 1943. he escaped... Uh, to, uh, in fishing boats to Sweden, which connects us to Sweden, actually. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions about that story and myths, and there's some truths, and, uh, and it's, it's a fascinating story. I'd love to do an episode on it one time, so if that's something that piques your interest, you can be in touch with me about sponsoring that as well. Either way, we get to Sweden, finally. Uh, Stockholm, which is the main Jewish community, the capital, it's not so old, also, and it's a re- relatively small community. Jews were not allowed to live in Sweden. Uh, until 1718, actually, all non-Christians—Muslims, Jews—until um, 1718, Sweden had um, fought with the Kingdom of Poland in the 17th century. Uh, They're also fighting at the Ottoman Empire. Um, actually, the uh, the what, what's we, we talk about the Xeris Tachvetat, 1648 and 1649 massacres, the Chmelnitsky massacres, which continued into the 1650s. There are all types of of pogroms and. And uh, many, many of the Jews who fled and who suffered during that time, especially in the northern areas of Lithuania, um, in those parts of the uh, Polish-Lithuanian uh, Commonwealth, were actually because of the Swedish invasion. The Shah, when he ran away from Vilna, was presumably because of the Swedish invasion and others. So, um, so they, they were fighting. And then Later they were fighting in the Ottoman Empire, and the, the Swedish crown went into debt. So Jewish merchants loaned money to the crown in exchange for rights of settlement and eventually other rights. But there were still many severe restrictions on Jewish life, immigration to Sweden and commerce, and that continued with ups and downs until the mid to late 19th century. And there was questions in Swedish society about the Jewish religion or also race. In other words, the first time in the 19th century that it appears was not only in Germany, the the question of of, of the race, was also in places like Sweden. Um, There were three main shuls in Stockholm, eventually, in the later 19th century. There was the Adas Shurun and the Adas Yisrael shuls were smaller, later, also later period of time, and they were Orthodox. And then there was, and still is, the magnificent edifice of the Great Stockholm Synagogue, the Great Synagogue of Stockholm, which was uh, officially non-denominational, which made it a bit less Orthodox, to say the least, but it was really influenced by Reform Judaism in Germany. It opened in 1870. Which was the same year that this, that Swedish Jewry got official citizenship and it was the first building owned by the officially recognized Jewish community. So at the turn of the century, in the twentieth century, there were about four thousand Jews in in Sweden. So it's still a relatively small Jewish community. There were probably <clears throat> excuse me, there were probably more Jews on one block in, in Warsaw or the Lower East Side at the time than in the entire Sweden. But by nineteen twenty it had somewhat grown. Uh, about six and a half thousand Jews. That's when Eastern European immigration began to be restricted by the Swedish government. Um, in fact, it was only in 1910 that the Jewish, the Jews in Sweden, received the full equal uh, rights. Uh, one of the last places in the world that it took place because it was very gradual. They received citizenship and then equal before the law. It was a whole, a whole process. The Nazi rise to power in 1933 in Germany fundamentally alters the demographics of Swedish Jewry in several ways. Firstly, there was German-Jewish refugees who streamed into the country. This augmented the population of the community. And then, in, that was the 1930s. Then in 1942, already during World War II, and Sweden is neutral, so when the deportations begin from the countries under Nazi occupation, so close to a 1,000 Norwegian Jews found asylum in Sweden, which saved their lives, and then in October 1943, what I mentioned before, the famous and daring escape of the entire, almost the entire Danish Jewish community of about eight thousand Jews, arrived in in uh, in Sweden, which is a whole story. Like I said, they were on the fishing boats, a whole operation. So the Swedish Jewish community is literally swamped with their, you know, much more than their own population with these uh, new arrivals. Although Swedish immigration policy until 1942 was not that welcoming. Uh, to Jews, Jewish immigration, and by the way, neither was the Swedish Jewish community that welcoming, uh, with a few exceptions. Um, however, Sweden was their neutrality. They, they, it was you know questionable neutrality. They, they did have you know some questionable policies. There were German companies that operated in Sweden. There was funding. There was business ties. Um, the German companies that actually operated in Sweden during the war were were able to practice their discriminatory policies against Jews in their company, against Swedish Jews in their company. And most importantly, there was a couple of hundred Swedes who actually volunteered to join the SS, which happened in many countries in Europe, uh, both neutral countries and others. It's a it's a whole other story also. At the end of the war, uh, their last weeks of the war, literally, The so-called white buses story with the Swedish Red Cross, where several thousand inmates of uh, concentration camps were rescued by the Swedish Red Cross at the end of the war and after liberation, brought to Sweden to recuperate and receive medical care. Some of them were, were Jews, not all of them, a minority actually. And In fact, in Yad Vashem, there's an original white bus as an exhibit Outside in one of the outdoor exhibits. So the Jewish population understandably swells uh, during all this time. The head of the Jewish community was a fellow by the name of Rabbi Mordecai, Mordecai Aaron Price. He was officially recognized as the chief rabbi of Stockholm for close to 40 years. He was, um, how shall we say this? He was not not really, well, not that religious. I don't know if he officially was reform or he definitely was not Orthodox. Um, hard, to, hard to, you know, classify it exactly. Um, but he was, until his death in 1951, he was the chief rabbi. He was born in Lvov, in, in, in Poland, and he was a rabbi in Bulgaria for some time, actually. It's hard to define, like I said, his, his denomination. He was a Zionist for some time, less so later, he was a bit of a scholar, a writer, and there was some conflict during the war with the Orthodox community, between him and members of the Orthodox community in regards to rescue activities. On the other hand, he was involved in getting Raoul Wallenberg, which is one of the greatest uh, Swedish stories of the war, the diplomat to, to, to Budapest. So he was involved in getting him to his rescue activities in Budapest in the closing weeks of the Nazi occupation there. So Wallenberg actually visited Aaron Price the night before he left. So Aaron Price was one of the last people in Sweden to see him because... Uh, Wallenberg dis- uh, disappeared into Soviet captivity uh, uh, at the end of the war. The whole Raul Wallenberg story is a huge and, and very important story, and also have to devote a separate episode to it another time. Um, one of the people who lived in Sweden during that time was Roshelim Volbe, who was uh, who was later renowned as the great Mashgiach in Israel and several yeshivas for many many years, affiliated with the Mir. When I came there, he was giving shmuzen in the Mir, um, and he. Uh, he was in the Mir in Poland before the war. He was a, a German citizen. He had up, grown up in Berlin, in Bal- Balchuva, and eventually made it to the Mir. And he's as a refugee from Nazi Germany, he makes it to Sweden in the late 1930s. He spends over eight years in uh, in uh, in Sweden. He uh, eventually ran a rehabilitation camp in Lidingo, a very famous camp. His wife was, excuse me, that's where he met his wife, the daughter of the Slabatka Meshkeiach of um his, uh, who wrote, she wrote in her great, fantastic book, "The Amunascha Balelais and Your Faith Through the Night. It's been translated into English. The great book. So at the end, she has a whole uh, story about this uh, this refugee camp in Lindingo, where both she and her husband taught in it. And um, so um, he served, Rabbi Shlomo served as a key liaison for the Salah to funnel the funds to the Mir Yeshiva in Shanghai, from New York to Shanghai, because Sweden was a neutral country. And uh, so he was involved in that. He was a crucial player in that story, and he later taught in this girls' school. Um, he was together with a fascinating individual named Rabin Yamin Zev Yaakovson, who was a Yaki. He grew up in Germany, in Hamburg. Amazing person, real life story. He's a real uh, Yaki, Torem Derech Heretz follower of Rav or Fall Hirsch, even though he was born after his passing. But he was very involved with the Hagodis Israel. and following the Nazi rise to power, he was already middle-aged, he had a family, he escaped to Denmark, and he becomes a rabbi in Copenhagen. And then he escapes from Denmark during that famous escape that I mentioned of Danish Jewry to Sweden during the war, in 1943, he becomes a rabbi in Stockholm, in Sweden. And then he becomes involved in rescue work and represented the Varatzala together with Rav and then later he, uh, he and his wife established the girls school. They were the ones who founded it and Urboba was working for him. They were the heads of this. They were like the parents of all these, this girls school. And it was a dormitory. It was a legendary place. There was uh, all these refugees and survivors. There were over a thousand girls. And he literally ran the whole operation. And then in, in, in a very warm and loving way, he was like a, a parent to these, all these orphans, these recent orphans. Um, he and he and his wife were like parents to them. Um, so she, um, he later on, he moves to Israel. He was very active in the Yagodis Yisrael, and also in the Pahyalei Agoris Yisrael, the Yagodis Yisrael Workers Movement. He was the founder and the first rabbi of the Pahyalei Yagodis Yisrael, the Pagi neighborhood in Sanhedria in Yerushalayim. And he had um, a very prominent family, his descendants in Israel till today. So the Swedish government takes in these refugees at the end of the war, and the local community had to establish the infrastructure to take care of them. Um, some of the interesting personalities who lived in Sweden... During that time, there was Dr. Manfred Lehman, one of the most multi-talented and prolific Jews of the entire 20th century. He was born in Stockholm in 1922, and he immigrated to the United States at the beginning of the war, actually, in 1940. But he was a very successful businessman and political activist, and traveler, Zionist. He was a Talmud Chacham. He had rabbinical ordination from Ner Yisrael. He's also a scholar of archaeology and the Dead Sea Scrolls and of antiquity. Um, he he wrote, in, fascinatingly enough, his doctorate on Hittite property law, the Hitti, uh, known in Tanakh, to be able to explain the acquisition of the Mara Samachpela. You know, God only knows how he discovered, went, bumped into that topic. Um, so he grew up religiously as an Orthodox Jew in Sweden in the 1920s and 30s. This time that we're talking about, and then immediately after the war, you have all these refugees. So one of the more famous ones is the uh, cartoonist Art Spiegelman, who was the son of Polish Holocaust survivors who made it as refugees to Sweden, and he is born there, and uh, to, to his you know his, his survivor parents, you know, he was three years old when they moved to New York, but he was born in, in Sweden, and he, later on he wrote this incredible, one of the greatest Holocaust books, controversial but amazing books uh, written called Maus, which won a Pulitzer Prize. It, it was a very creative style of, of uh, writing a Holocaust book where, the, where the, um, the Jews are depicted as mice and the Nazis going after them. A very interesting concept. Either way, so in general, many second-generation survivors were born in Sweden before moving on, and some actually stayed. Um, but there's a special place in Swedish Jewish history for a very unique individual named Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael Zuber, who is a Chabad chassid, and he served as a Sheikhit and a rabbi in Stockholm during a crucial time. He was in the right place and the right time in history, uh, during the pre-war, during the war, and the immediate post-war. He's a fascinating individual with a great story, Um, So I want to elaborate a bit on him and his life story. And through him, it's a real window into the story of Jews in Sweden during the 1930s and 40s. He's born into a prominent family of Lubavitch Hasidim um, in middle class, in an agricultural settlement, believe it or not, in Belarus, Uh, who knew that that there were Jewish agricultural settlements where Hasidim lived during the uh, early 1900s, late 1800s. His father was a Sheikh as well, and he actually got killed his father, uh, this Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael's father, got killed by an armed robber while on a Shita trip in the white Russian countryside, which is a, a, a tragic irony because he himself would later on get murdered as well. Um, so he, Rabbi Yaakov, young Yaakov Yisrael, studied in the original Taim Chetamimim Yeshiva in Labavish by the fifth Rebbe of Chabad, the Rashab, who sent him on one of the first ever uh, shlichas in the history of Chabad, uh, to do, go celebrate Purim. We're about to celebrate Purim soon, this week, uh, next week. And for Jewish soldiers in the Tsar's army, uh, which he successfully did. And how did he do it? He was armed with a Megillah and a bottle of vodka. What else do you need for Purim besides for a Megillah and a bottle of vodka? So he became also a close student of the Ragachover, Rabbi Yosef Rosen, who he, whom he considered his Rebbe. when the Ragachover passed away in 1936. He was already a rabbi in Stockholm, and he delivered a very emotional eulogy in his shul. So under the communists, he received smicha from some prominent rabbis. He's studying for smicha in communist Russia, and then at the same time, he becomes a mile uh, to perform brises, and the sheichet, and a rabbi of different communities in communist Russia. And he built mikvahs. You, you, you can't imagine this even took place in, in, under the communists. He would correspond in halachic matters with b- very, uh, big paiskim, such as the Shover, his rabbi, who are outside of the Soviet Union. He eventually leaves the Soviet Union in 1929. He comes to, comes to Riga, and he unsuccessfully tries to get to the United States. But by now, he's one of the most prominent rabbis and paiskim in the worldwide Chabad. In fact, the Rayats, the Friyadikah Rebbe, the previous rabbi of, uh, of Lubavitch, he sold his Chametz. To Rabbi Zuber in 1931 when he was in Riga. So uh, we have the original list of what the Rayats had on his Chametz that he sold. I mean, a document still exists. See, so he lists the Chametz. Of course, there's a few bottles of Mashke on the list that he's selling. Uh, in 1932, the Rayats received a letter from the Jewish community in Stockholm to send them a, a, uh, a rabbi who's Willing to perform in multifunctions, in this, Moil as a sheikh, as a chazan, Sir Rabbi Zuber was chosen and sent. This begins a new chapter in his life. Swedish Jewry at the time was primarily either Reform or even assimilated. There was very, very small Orthodox, uh, very nominal presence. Um, there was the, the shuls were were primarily temples. And this Adas Yisrael shul that invited him was a very small Orthodox congregation in the city. And that's where he was hired. So he's struggling between, this congregation was struggling between dependence on the mainstream reform community and their rabbi, Aaron Price, Rabbi Mordechai Aaron Price, I mentioned earlier, and uh, trying to maintain their own independence. So he would remain for 15 years in uh, in Stockholm and Sweden until 1947 at the helm of this small immigrant community of German Jews, Lithuanian Jews, Polish Orthodox Jews, um, it was a very low state of religious life in Sweden at the time. Even in the Orthodox community at that time, uh, two people, when he arrived, two people built their own sukkah. The rest either, again, and this is in the Orthodox shul, the rest ate in the shul sukkah or didn't bother uh, eating in the sukkah at all. So he throws himself right into the work. He becomes a chazan. He's the mail. He's the shaykhit. He even travels to outlying smaller Jewish communities outside of Stockholm to perform bris, uh, a bris. He fixed the existing mikvahs. He maintained the Jewish cemetery. He starts delivering Torah classes to the adults and the youth. His children are forced to go to public school and even serve in the Swedish army because there was no Jewish uh, schools there yet. But he was successful in raising them as observant Jews. That's how his children remain. Um, So he would even, because there was no Jewish schools, he would gather the local children, Swedish Jewish children, to his house on Shabbos afternoon and try to instill some Judaism, some Yiddishkeit into them, while his wife would prepare good food, which was the big attraction, and the two of them would work together to try to influence the youth. So he really was fighting to combat assimilation among the Swedish Jewry, and he would assist also at the time with fundraising efforts for all of the yeshivas in Europe, who were fundraising all over the world, so that included Sweden. So I, during the course of the preparation for this episode, I saw letters, copies of letters, from the 1920s and 30s, that came to Rabbi Zuber from the time Chetmim Yeshiva in Lubavitch, of course, but um, but also not it wasn't in Lubavitch then, of Lubavitch, of the Lubavitch uh, Hasidus, um, but also from the Chavetz Chaim, from in Radin, Rebarch Ber Libovitch in in Kamenetz, Cutler in Kletzk, Reb Finkel of the Mir, the Teires Chesed Yeshiva in Brisk of Rebisrael Chaim Kaplan. The Hebron Yeshiva, Reb Chaskol Sarna, the Slabatki Yeshiva, Reb Isaac Sher, they all corresponded with him. He was the key point man for any fundraising efforts in, in Sweden. During his time, there were three major campaigns, major projects that he was involved with during his time uh, as rabbi there. There was the Shechita campaign, there was helping the refugees from the Holocaust, and then there was, in the post-war, the assisting with the Agunas. So we'll go them one by one. Number 1. In 1935 the Swedish government outlawed shriite. So he fought it on two fronts. First of all he wanted to combat the law itself as correspondence and letters with rabbis worldwide lobbying and also by continuing to be a sheikh despite the limitations. For many years he would sail out on a boat across the border and then he would perform shriite there. Uh, especially prior to Yuntif. But for for anyone in the community who wanted, alternatively, what he'd do is he would stop off at the government office on his way to shecht in the morning and prepay the fine for shechting on a daily basis. He would do this. He was very honest, and he felt that he should be paying the fine if he broke the law. So he would just prepay it in person on a daily basis, and this way he also got to know the government officials, who uh, you know eventually gained a certain respect for him. So um, there's a. Uh, the 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 Rayats, uh the Friedrich Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, the sixth Rebbe of Chabad, when he escaped from Nazi Germany, through Riga, Pol- from Nazi-occupied Poland, through Germany, through, I just, just covered that in a recent episode. So he on his way to New York, he spent one day in, in Stockholm. He switched uh, boats in, in there. And it was like a Yontif. Here his own Rebbe stayed by his house. He spent a day in Sweden. So Rabbi Zuber hosted him and his family got to meet him and get blessed by the Rayats. The Rayats met with followers in the city. He said, the way it's described is that Rabbi Zuber put on his Shabbos clothing. It was like the most joyful day here in this far out Sweden. You have one of the greatest Rebbes in the world who's his own Rebbe, who he's personally so close with, who comes to actually spend the day in his home. So that uh, that took place uh, during that time as well. So, We'll move on to the next, which brings us right into the next issue of the refugees. Ryaz essentially was a refugee. So Sweden was an exit or transit point for those leaving Europe. So there was Hasidim who managed to get out of Russia. That was earlier from the Soviet Union. And later on, when the war clouds are hanging over Europe, so then there's, you know, German Jewish refugees and later on others. So his address was, was to be a point and he assisted with numerous refugees, especially since Sweden remained neutral somewhat neutral throughout the wars. His home became a beehive of rescue work, trying to rescue the uh, different uh, people in, in, in distress and get them entry papers to Sweden, which the establishment community tried to prevent. They were not interested. The establishment Jewish community was trying to prevent. The more assimilated uh, um, community did not want it. And here he's not only fighting the Swedish government, and uh, and Nazi-occupied Europe. He's also dealing with local Swedish Jews who don't want this influx of, of uh, Eastern European refugees. And he raises funds, and he sends funds to trap Jews under Nazi occupation. He evolves into this incredible rescue activist. Uh, and he, he like I said earlier, he comes into conflict with the Aaron Price to a certain extent over tactics. Um, so his activities range from uh, rescue and obtaining visas to Sweden, uh, and uh, tried to get a whole boatload of Jews out of Riga, which was unsuccessful, when the Nazis invade Denmark and Norway, uh, and you know, Finland had its own issues with the Russia, against R- Russia, so all these Jews are leaving all these Scandinavian countries, so there's this new project to assist Scandinavian Jewish refugees streaming into Sweden. He worked together with Reb Volba to help transfer the funds of the Mir Yeshiva to Shanghai. Reb Volba actually would have a a charusa with him. He would study Torah with him. during One of the only people who our Volba said he was able to study Torah with at the time. Post-war, we come to one of his most ambitious projects, which was agunas, women who were uh, unable to remarry unless they got a special dispensation because it was unknown what had happened to their husbands during the Holocaust. This really could even be its own episode. It's such an incredible story. There's this mass, hundreds of letters of correspondence finding out information, networking with other rabbis, especially with Rabbi Abramsky, Labramski, who was then in the London Bezden, who presumably he knew him already in Russia. There were both uh, rabbis in Russia under the communists. Rabbi Hatzka Labramski was sent to Siberia, so he probably knew him from before. Uh, but now Rabbi Abramsky was in London. They corresponded greatly about this issue. He literally lived the Aguna question. Rabbi Zuber, Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael Zuber, was living the Aguna question on a daily basis because the refugee women were in his house. They would often live out of suitcase in his ho- suitcases in his home until he was able to find a hetter for them, until he was able to allow them to go on their way. Uh, he threw his whole heart and soul into releasing them so they could rebuild their shattered lives and get remarried and, and just move on. His wife would keep large pots of food on the stove day and night because their home was literally a hotel. Uh, most of the survivors felt the need to tell what they had been through, and most people at the time were not interested in listening. But the Agunas would take the opportunity to relate their entire story of woe among the details of their aguna questions. So he would have to sit and hear through these heartbreaking stories again and again, and he would cry through the night, and eventually he fell ill. Rabbi Zuber uh, got sick from the sorrow and the brokenness. In 1947, he felt the time had come to move on for his children's education and all all kinds of other reasons. So he decided to move to the United States. He became a rabbi in Boston. He also headed the Achet Tamimim, uh, uh, Labavitch Yeshiva in in Boston. He was on the Agudas Rabbanim, the rabbinical uh, American rabbinical uh, uh, board of, of rabbis, Agudas Rabbanim of European rabbis primarily. He was also cl- close with other Boston rabbis, including Rav Soloveitchik, who he was very close with. And after this incredible life and career, and he's still at the height of his strength and activities. He was 56 years old. He was unfortunately a very tragic story. He was tragically murdered by a drunken a non-Jew, on New Year's Eve in 1953. A very sad ending to a very great man. Rav Solveitschik actually delivered the eulogy at his funeral. So that's a little bit about uh, Swedish Jewry in Scandinavia. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, sponsorships, lectures, virtual tours, and tours. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundBites, and I hope you enjoyed.